uh, it's kind of uh, interesting being the person to kind of pull this session to an end um, and contrasting what I'll be saying with the uh, previous presentations, uh, just this last, latter part of the session, kind of going from the uh, kind of smallest scale, uh, both in time and space, uh, looking at, at climate change and global warming issues, to kind of pulling back and looking at this in about the largest conceivable scale. Um, but that's what I'm going to try to do, is, is to place the concerns, the current um, concerns over anthropogenic global warming into a much broader and geological context. Um, because I think a lot of misunderstandings in the public about the issue of global warming um, have to do with, with uh, putting in a proper uh, context, particularly a proper temporal context. So that's where we're going. Um, and these are three issues that I hope to address during the time that we have. Uh, first is looking at scales of climate change. Uh, like any geological or natural process, uh, climate change occurs at a broad range of different time scales. Um, it also has a broad range of forcing mechanisms. And those forcing mechanisms themselves operate at different time scales, both temper different temporal and uh, spatial scales. And there are also feedback systems. So it's a very complicated system, only one that's only gradually being understood. It's still not completely uh, understood. So the first thing I want to address is the issue of scale, of time scale. Um, anytime we talk about a trend um, in any kind of context, Talking about that trend is scale dependent. In other words, you can't talk about a trend with also, without also talking about a particular temporal scale. Um, and the meaning of that trend is going to be tied to whatever temporal scale is being considered. Also, uh, again, as with not just climate change, but most natural processes, um, because of the, the forcing mechanisms, the processes involved operate at different temporal scales. The trends that are generated at different temporal scales have different causes. Okay? So if you're talking about short-term climate change or longer-term climate change, you're not talking about the same processes. You're talking about different mechanisms. Um, so this is an important th takeaway point, is that the causal mechanisms are tied to temporal scale. Um, and I was trying to come up with a, an analogy uh, to help emphasize this concept of the importance of temporal scale. And I came up with this idea of using the stock market, something we have at least some familiarity with that's completely outside of uh, the global climate change context, but illustrates well uh, the issue of scale when we talk about trends. So here we have four different curves okay, uh, with regard to uh, stock market trends. Each of those curves or graphs shows a particular trend or a particular kind of trajectory in the curve. 
Um, here we have um, uh, one over here that's a single day, not even quite a full day of tra trading on the stock market, um, where uh, you see a, a gradual rise to some maximum and then a decline towards the end of the day. Here is a graph that is for six months. Okay, so this graph here, this data becomes a single point on that curve. Here we have a curve that's the last three years of changes on the stock market, where now this data becomes compressed to just a couple data points at the end of this curve. And then finally, we have one here that is about the last 30 years of the stock market. And notice, depending on which of those curves you look, if it was scale independent, if you just saw this curve without any scale on it, you would have drastically different perceptions about the stock market. <coughs> you know, if someone showed you this curve uh, and didn't tell you what values were on this graph, you'd say, wow, you know, we have an exponential <coughs> relationship in the stock market. Whereas if you looked at the last day, you said, what happened? Something, what, why is the stock market crashing? You know? um, so, and at each of these scales, completely different mechanisms, completely different forcing factors are at play to generate the, these curves at different scales. And it's the same way with global climate change. So let's look at some of those forcing mechanisms. Uh, I'm going to start with the largest possible scale and then work my way down to, to smaller scale. Um, so first with solar irradiance. Okay, that's the, the primary uh, forcing mechanism for global climate change. Notice how much energy is the Earth receiving from the sun. Um, the largest, longest term scale change that we know about with solar irradiance is that the sun is changing in luminosity over its lifetime. Uh, stars like our sun uh, tend to increase in luminosity during their lifetimes. Um, and based on theoretical uh, considerations of uh, uh, star um, uh, birth and, and life cycles and observations of solar spectra and all those kinds of things, um, it's estimated that from at the time that the Earth formed, the solar system formed, the planets condensed from the primordial nebula, um, that the sun was only 70 to 75% as bright as it is now. So over the history of the Earth, the sun has increased in luminosity 25%. That's pretty significant. Okay, so the sun, the luminosity of the sun has increased in time uh, during the history of the Earth. There are also uh, smaller scale periodic changes in solar radiation. Um, and these are commonly called Milankovitch cycles because they were uh, recognized and discovered uh, quite a number of years ago, uh, actually by a meteorologist. Um, and it recognized that there was these periodicities to um, 
solar radiation from the sun, the amount of sun that the Earth's surface received. And there are th three main cycles. Um, one is obliquity. Uh, obliquity is, as we know, as you certainly know, the Earth's axis isn't um, horizontal or vertical with respect to its orbit around uh, the sun, but it's at an, uh, an incline. Well, that incline hasn't been constant over time. Uh, so in fact, what happens is the Earth's, the inclination of the Earth's axis oscillates like this. Okay? So sometimes it's at a greater inclination, sometimes it's a lesser inclination. So over a predictable periodicity, the inclination of the Earth's orbit is oscillating in a fashion like that. Precession, this actually refers to the precession of the equinoxes during the year, that is the time at um, uh, day and night are equal in length. That doesn't always occur at the same time of the year. That changes over time. And that is because not only is the Earth's axis tilted, but the Earth is wobbling. You know, if you ever spin a top on a table and don't have it perfectly vertical when you spin it, the top goes like this. That's what the Earth is doing. Okay? So the Earth's axis is wobbling. And that means that at different times of the year, sometimes, say, the northern hemisphere, the North Pole is tilted away from the sun at its closest approach, and at sometimes it's tilted toward the sun at its closest approach. So that changes how much sun, uh, solar radiation the Earth receives at a particular time of the year. And the last is eccentricity of the Earth's orbit. The Earth's orbit is almost circular, but it isn't quite. It's slightly um, oval. Um, and the degree of uh, ellipticity of the Earth's orbit, right, eccentricity of the orbit, changes over time. Sometimes it's more circular. Sometimes it's more oval. Okay? Each of those have different temporal scales. Here is uh, precession. Normally, it's just kind of averaged out to say about 20,000 year cycle. Okay, so that's the uh, precession is, so it takes 20,000 years for the Earth to do that once. Okay, to make one wobble takes 20,000 years. Uh, obliquity, uh, that has to do with uh, how tilted the Earth's orbit is, or the Earth's axis. That changes at about a 40-year periodicity. And then there's eccentricity, that's changes in the circularity of the orbit. And that changes on several different time scales, 95,000, 120, and 400,000 years. You can take and add up these curves, and you get this. Okay, So that shows the periodic changes in the amount of radiation that the Earth receives due to those changes in the Earth's uh, orbit and rotation. There are also quite short-term uh, scale changes on human lifetime types of scales. Uh, these have to do with changes in the Earth's magnetosphere, uh, and these occur on a 10 to 11 year cycle, uh, usually coincident with changes in sunspot density. Uh, so that the amount of solar radiation that the Earth receives fluctuates on about a 10 year cycle from solar uh, sunspot maximum to minimum. Okay, so 
That's solar irradiation. Another main driver, obviously, is atmospheric composition. Uh, and atmospheric composition uh, is also changes at different time scales. Uh, and I'm going to restrict myself here to looking at just car primarily carbon dioxide and also methane uh, being two of the major uh, greenhouse gases. Um, and these have changed over Earth history, again, at a variety of different time scales. Um, Long-term changes have to do with balances of processes that release carbon dioxide or methane or store or sequester carbon dioxide or methane. So you have processes that release those gases into the atmosphere and processes that remove them from the atmosphere. And the balance of those things is going to tell whether those greenhouse gases concentrations increase or decrease. Um, and they do increase and decrease. Um, and um, this also shows that uh, this is uh, carbon dioxide here. This is just for last 400,000 years. Uh, carbon dioxide here, methane here, and here is global average temperatures. Uh, and what you see is that there's a very close correlation between the concentration of carbon dioxide and methane and global average temperatures. Okay? They fluctuate in a, a very um, um, close manner. There's a very, very high correlation between the concentration of carbon dioxide and methane in global temperatures. And we also know what the mechanism is involved. I mean, we also understand uh, physically and chemically what's going on uh, as far as how those gases are affecting global climate global temperature. So if we want to look at um, the changes in atmospheric composition over time, we have to look at the factors that are increasing CO2 in this example and processes that are removing it. And what, what are the balances between these things? Um, sources of carbon dioxide primarily uh, this is actually pretty, this is the pretty simple end of things. Um, volcanic gases uh, are the primary um, source of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, carbon dioxide is one of the major volcanic gases, along with carbon monoxide and nitrogen and water. In fact, the most dominant gas uh, from volcanoes is water vapor. Um, and also, uh, the oxidation of any organic matter, whether that's by respiration, whether that's from decomposition, or whether it's by weathering and erosion of organic-rich sediments, um, uh, oxidation of organic matter, uh, again, is a means of releasing carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So again, one of the, the main drivers here is gas release from volcanism. Um, removal of CO2 is a little more complex. Um, one thing that lots of people aren't aware of uh, is that weathering is a major way of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, everybody's heard of, of uh, acid rain. Uh, well, acid is, uh, rain is always acid. 
because as long as there's carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide dissolves very readily in water um, and produces carbonic acid. That acid reacts with surface rocks, in this case, looking at uh, silicate rocks, which were the dominant rocks on the crust of the Earth. Um, and in the process of doing that, they break them down. They break the minerals of those rocks down. And the carbon that was in the atmosphere is bound into new compounds, new ionic compounds, such as calcium carbonate, which we call limestone. Okay? So all the limestone rocks that you can see anywhere on Earth, all that carbon, it's in that limestone. There's the carbon, carbon dioxide. All that carbon dioxide that's in those limestones originally came from the atmosphere. Photosynthesis is another major way of getting it out of the atmosphere. Photosynthesis uh, obviously takes carbon out, turns that into biomass. And if the living biomass, any increase in the living biomass is, an is a reduction in CO2 in the atmosphere. But to really get it out, to really sequester it, to get it out, you have to bury it. Otherwise, you're just going to keep recycling it. So it has to be buried. Okay? Uh, and that buried carbon turns into things like coal and oil and gas and things like that. Um, and you also have the carbon that's buried in carbonate rocks. So you have a number of reservoirs uh, where carbon is stored. Um, you have the carbonate rocks, like such as limestones and dolomites and other things. Uh, you have carbon dioxide that's dissolved in the world's oceans. Again, carbon dioxide dissolves into water quite readily. Uh, all the carbon that's in the Earth's uh, biomass Carbon that's in soils, a huge amount of carbon is held in soils uh, worldwide. And permafrost, wetlands, and peatlands. Another thing that people aren't very familiar with are things called uh, clathrates or methane ices. Uh, the bottom of the uh, oceans are very cold. They're actually below freezing uh, fresh water at surface temperatures, uh, surface uh, pressures. Um, so the water is very cold, and under those particular pressure and temperature conditions, uh, ices can form that trap methane. So you get this, this weird uh, complex between methane and uh, water ice. And there's actually enormous volumes of this stuff that are frozen in the sediments of the seafloor. Uh, incredible volumes of methane ices uh, that are in the seafloor. And then, again, you have... Uh, the uh, fossil fuels. So again, just illustrations of where the world's carbon is. Uh, this happens to be a methane ice. You can actually bring this stuff up from the sea, uh, sea bottom and light a match to it, and it burns. Um, so we have those balances. We have sources and sinks. Those sources and sinks, the balance between those sources and sinks are going to affect climate. Now I want to briefly talk about uh, feedback mechanisms. Um, one of those things is called albedo. Uh, that's how shiny, reflective the surface of the Earth is. Uh, ice and snow is very reflective. That is, a lot of the sunlight, a lot of solar radi radiation that hits the surface is reflected back out into space because it's a very reflective surface. Versus 
parts of the ocean that aren't ice covered or uh, land masses which absorb solar radiation, are much more absorptive. So you have a feedback system in that the more ice cover you have, the more snow cover you have, the more reflective the surface of the Earth is, which means the more of the incoming solar radiation is reflected back into space, which means you have a colder global average temperature, which means you generate more ice, which means the Earth becomes more reflective, which makes the temperature drop further, which generates more ice, and so forth. So it's a, what's called a positive feedback system. Uh, another feedback system is ocean circulation. Um, oceans circulate both uh, through surface currents. They're largely driven by wind, uh, prevailing wind directions. And you also have um, vertical circulation of the oceans. It's dri driven by temperature and salinity differences within the ocean. So this is ocean water that's circulating vertically up and down. And what happens in the world's oceans today, and what's important is the, Earth, the oceans have not always been like this. Um, but now the way our oceans work is that in the Arctic regions, both north and, and southern uh, polar oceans, waters get very cold. They start forming ice. When sea ice forms, uh, sea ice is actually much fresher than salt the salt water. The, as the ice freezes, it excludes the salt. And so the remaining water is saltier because the fresh water has been removed. And it's really cold. Okay, so you have this really cold, salty water, which is really dense. So it sinks. That dense air, dense air, that dense water then sinks to the bottom of the oceans and it flows throughout all the world's ocean basins until it upwells in certain locations and comes back to the surface again. As a result, the bottom of the oceans are really cold right now. Again, they're below freezing. Okay? That's because there's this conveyor belt in operation that brings down that cold saline water to the bottoms of the oceans. If that circulation system is disrupted, it'll change the whole global climate system. Um, other feedback systems, um, things like uh, permafrost and methane ices that I've talked about. If the Earth's global climate warms, um, you melt the permafrost. If you can shut down the vertical circulation of the oceans, which we know uh, has happened in the past, geologic history, uh, the ocean's uh, floors will warm. Uh, that could potentially melt those methane ices and release all that methane into the atmosphere, which would have a very rapid positive feedback uh, system. So what I want to do to end here is look at two different scenarios. One is a runaway ice house and one a runaway greenhouse, both of which have happened uh, several times in Earth history. So what causes a global ice house? First, you have to have something that's going to increase your carbon storage. Remember, you have this balance between release of carbon and sequestration of carbon. So to get it going, you have to start pulling out carbon at a higher rate from some mechanism. Um, 
two of those systems that we've recognized from the past Earth history is one um, increase in, in wetlands and peatlands, uh, low latitude uh, swamp forests uh, under the right kind of uh, situations of topography and, and so forth. Um, and as we'll see, there have been times at which uh, there have been vast wetlands and peatlands and coal-forming environments existing on Earth. Uh, and so, for example, as we'll see, much of the coal that's preserved in the world formed during a few relatively short periods of time in Earth history. Uh, so you take that, you store that, bury that carbon, that's taking it away from the atmosphere, or you increase weathering. You can do that by, what if you push up a big mountain range? That accelerates the weathering. Okay? Mountains weather a lot faster than low-lying flat land. The more mountains you have, the higher the weathering you have. Okay? So during times of very high elevation of the Earth's surface of mountain building, you also have accelerated um, weathering. So um, in um, the Permian period, end of the Pennsylvanian, early Permian, about 370 million years or so ago, it's the time of assembly of the supercontinent Pangaea. Uh, it was uplifting what we can now call the Appalachian Mountains. Huge mountain range size of the Himalayas and much longer. Um, so that weathering was highly accelerated. Um, so we had uh, a means of, of starting to pull out more carbon. It also turns out to be a time of major coal formation. Most, most of the coals, this is amount of coal. This is time, starting 600 million years ago to the present. How much coal was formed at different times in Earth history? And you can see the vast amount of coal uh, being formed in a relatively short period of time. Okay? All that coal used to be carbon that was in the atmosphere. Okay? It's a huge amount of carbon that used to be in the atmosphere. Well, if you look at, this is a, a curve of uh, estimated uh, concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from isotopic evidence and other things. Um, and this is time of continental glaciation. Well, here are the two lowest times, we're in one now, of lowest carbon dioxide concentrations in Earth history. Those are the two ice house worlds. We are in an ice house world today. Okay? And the other ice house world was, uh, again, uh, in the late Pennsylvanian, uh, when all those coals were being formed. And today we have a um, similar situation. Um, so you're increasing carbon storage by weathering and by formation of coals and, and other fossil fuels. Um, start lowering temperature, that increases ice uh, cover, um, and you start getting albedo effects. And uh, eventually, you get this positive feedback system, and you can end up into an ice house situation, a global uh, continental glaciation. The other thing is uh, greenhouse. Well, to do that, you have to do the opposite. Now you have to start releasing carbon faster than you're, you're storing it. Um, 
One way that that's happened in the past is large-scale basaltic volcanism. Uh, again, volcanoes produce most of the carbon dioxide. Uh, or reduce rates of carbon dioxide. What's interesting, this happened immediately after the last um, big uh, ice house world, back in the late Pennsylvania and early Permian, was followed by a runaway greenhouse. So you had a runaway ice house, and the runaway ice house was immediately followed by a runaway greenhouse because of these two things. The mountains got eroded down, so weathering slowed up, and there's a huge episode of volcanism at that time, volcanic eruptions. Um, ice started melting because the earth warmed up because those carbon dioxide concentrations increased, started melting the ice. Now you have a reverse albedo effect. The less ice, the more uh, heat was absorbed, and you get another positive feedback system. This continued on in this case. The example I'm using here is the end of the Permian, um, very end of the Permian, uh, that there's evidence that the global circulation shut down, that the bottoms of the oceans became warm. They also became anoxic. There's another thing that those cold waters carry to the ocean floor is oxygen. And at this time, all the ocean floors, a lot of the ocean floors went anoxic, uh, lose all your deep water uh, fossils, all your deep water organisms. Um, some people think that this was probably accentuated by uh, release of clathrates at that time, or methane ices. Um, and you ended up with a stratified ocean. There's no vertical circulation. You had a stratified ocean with anoxic bottom waters and then an oxygenated surface layer. Um, and it also coincided with the largest biological extinction event in Earth history uh, that was greater than the extinction event at the end of the age of dinosaurs. Uh, and right now, the, some, the, a lot of people in the scientific community looking at these kinds of issues uh, think this was the major driver for that extinction. Um, right. Um, as I said, uh, methane ices uh, likely were involved in this. Uh, and uh, a warming of stratified ocean, uh, some evidence of uh, release of hydrogen sulfide. Uh, this sulfur-producing uh, bacteria thrive really well in anoxic settings. Um, and here is that curve. It's kind of confusing because it's, I had flip it around. It's backwards. So this is. Uh, 600,000 years, and here is recent. Here you have uh, carbon dioxide concentrations. They dive down to this low, and then all of a sudden there's this huge peak right after. That's a Permian extinction. And then they come back to kind of the background level. Uh, they rise up here, somewhat of a secondary peak. And then here we are at our current time. So again, we're at a low carbon dioxide point of the environment, of, of world, uh, global climate. But my question that I, this is my last slide, the, the question I want to leave with us is that this increasing concern among at least some in the scientific community uh, that we may be approaching some of these positive feedback tipping points. And the problem is we don't know what they are. We don't understand the system well enough. 
We don't understand the ocean circulation system well enough. We don't understand this whole complex system well enough to know where the tipping points are. Um, but we have these, again, from looking back in the past history of the Earth, um, we know that these things have happened. They're not just theoretical. I mean, these aren't theoretical consequences. These things have happened in Earth history in the past. Uh, in the case of the Permian, the end of the Permian, it was things like massive uh, volcanism and erosion of, of an, an, uh, very low-lying continents. But today, what we're doing is we're taking all that carbon that was stored, taken away out of the atmosphere back in the, the uh, uh, end of the Carboniferous, taken out of that atmosphere and turned into coal and petroleum and natural gas, and we're oxidizing it. So we're artificially returning all that Mesozoic or all that Paleozoic carbon back into the atmosphere again. Um, and so, uh, the, the, and we already know some of these things are beginning to happen. Uh, the uh, ice cover at the North Pole has had been at, at its lowest last year, I think, was at its lowest coverage uh, since records have been kept. And there's some predictions that within as little as a decade that the North Pole will be ice-free in the summer. There will be no sea ice in the northern hemisphere in the summer. So to, at what point then do we start affecting thermohaline circulation? At what point do we shut down the conveyor belt? We don't know. Um, at what point do we start warming the oceans enough that methane ices start being melted and released? We don't know. You know, we know we're melting permafrost. That's happening now. How much do we melt before we enter a positive feedback system? So these are what I lay before you as concerns and warnings that we need to better understand. Thank you. According to the clock, the session is over. However, there are some of those of you who will want to ask questions. Those who do are excused. The rest can leave quietly and go have their afternoon.